Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. We have with us today, Xander Kegg, who might as well, I think he should be an honorary co-host because he's on enough and Xander, welcome again. And one of our favorite guests, Debbie Hayton. So it's so nice to see you again, Debbie. And, and you are the one who is in the later time zone. Did you bring a drink to this table? <laughs> well, not actually. It's it's uh, it's a little bit later, but uh, it's just early afternoon here now. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think we're all coffeeing it because it's early for us, right? <laughs> yeah. Was anyone brave enough to put it in their coffee? I was not. I still have to run today. Anyways. All right. So here we are. We have been talking about doing this podcast with Debbie and Xander for months now. And with that said, David, take us away. Great. So I've been really excited about doing this because I think in, in some ways it's it's unusual and I could be I could be wrong. I think we're going to get into some interesting and sensitive territory. And part of what we've tried to do on Hold My Drink is to model how to have sensitive but thoughtful conversations with people that 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 tend to be highly politicized if not done right. And so we're going to try to do that today. Um, but before we get into some of the more sensitive areas, I, I wanted to really start out with, you know, you're both trans activists. You're both been involved in the public discussion around trans health and trans issues in UK and the US. Maybe there's some differences there that are worth exploring as well. Um, and, um, and I'm really interested in sort of the different experiences that you've had one, Xander being a trans man and Debbie being a trans woman, and how you think that that's both similar and different from each other. Maybe, Xander, I'll start with, with we'll start with you on that. Um, and what is your impression on how it's similar and different to be a trans man and a trans woman in this day and age? Sure. Thank you, David. Um, I, I would want, I'd like to say that I don't consider myself an activist, actually. I, I consider myself an advocate. And I do distinguish between the two. I have been an activist in my past. And by that, I mean, you know, raising a ruckus and causing a disturbance and shouting at people. And, you know, for me, advocacy is just a bit more tame. And perhaps that's because I'm 55 years old and just don't have the energy for that kind of, you know, activism anymore. Um, nor do I have the interest in that kind of um, that kind of anger. I just I just have no interest in that anymore. Um, so similarities and dissimilarities, I, I think that they're, um, I'll start with some of the dissimilarities. I think they have to do primarily with the fact that, generally speaking, um, depending on what age you come to an understanding of yourself as trans and at what age you might embark on a medical transition in particular, um, the earlier years are then going to be steeped in the socialization of your natal or biological sex. So, you know, I was until age 39 seen by all around me as a woman, a very masculine one most of my life, very much a tomboy in my younger years, but still nonetheless a woman, a female. And so people treated me and had expectations of me based on that, um, you know, that part of my life. And so I would say that's probably something that's dissimilar. I, I doubt that Debbie had that kind of experience or that most trans women have that experience, unless, of course, they transition even socially at a very young age, you know, before they start, we start to differentiate in such a, um, a broad way that people can pick us out as boys and girls, you know, which is pre pubertal right? Um, and uh, some dissimilarities um, might be that because of that socialization, how we come into the community might differ. So, for example, it used people used to think that most trans men came through the lesbian community, 
prior to um, transitioning um, into being men or males or whatever people language it. Um, and and that I don't think that that's the truth anymore. I don't think that it's the bulk of us. I think that people um, who are trans men come from a variety of sexual orientations prior and then have different sexual orientations sometimes, or at least the object of their trans of their of their attraction changes if their sexual orientation doesn't. What I mean by that is, you know, prior to my transition, I was I was attracted to women. I'm still attracted to women. The label was lesbian then, now it's straight guy, right? But my attraction actually didn't change, but the label changes. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people think that trans women come either through the drag queen community or the cr uh, cross-dresser community, um, but not as much through the gay male community. Um, I don't know if that's still true. That's sort of my old thinking um, that perhaps that is the case. So there, so then that route into the trans community is going to be very differ differently oriented that since I came through the lesbian community and spent like a good couple of decades there, I was very familiar with gay rights movement, right? On a civil rights, on a social level, people who come from fully like straight worlds and then come into the LGBT community, they don't understand our culture, our vernacular, um, our history. And so I think there's some dissimilarities then in how we, how we orient ourselves and how we acclimate to and how we adjust to um, uh, or, or um, integrate into this broader LGBTQ community. Yeah, it's, that's, it's really interesting, Zander. It's, it's, it's lovely to meet you as well for the first time today. Uh, I think our experiences are different in the way that uh, the experiences of the sexes generally are different. And from growing up, we you're right, we had, those, uh, we had those different experiences. I thought it was interesting the way you were looking at uh, the way our sexuality works in all this as well. Uh, I'm... Uh, I, I'm female attracted and always have been, so my uh, my sexual orientation never changed. And uh, so when you were talking about uh, the routine through the gay community for men, that wasn't me at all. You know, it's something which uh, was completely separate to me. I was uh, I was a straight man who uh, who had a had the need to transition uh, in midlife. I was a little bit a uh, little bit older than you, but not much. Uh, when uh, when I did transition, I had also it took me a long time to actually work through who I was, why I was doing it, and where I was coming from. I think now I would probably be happy. Uh, I'd be happy to describe myself as heterosexual in the same way I was always heterosexual, in that I'm male and my partner's female, which is a an opposite sex relationship. Uh, so that's that's interesting how we look at our, how our sexuality. Uh, fits there in that who we're attracted to and that definitely is part of us. In terms of the general experiences of trans men and trans women, uh, from my observations is we, we're all human beings and we're all, we've all uh, had a remarkable history I guess which, which gives us all uh, something very much in common. Uh, beyond that the differences do come down to I think as you said our upbringing, our early socialization, which socialized me as a boy and would socialize as trans men as the opposite sex. But also it's, it's interesting looking at our, just how we're actually made. And it always amuses me in the trans, in the trans community when you, uh, when you get a mixture of uh, trans men and trans women that uh, sometimes it is a mirror image to what goes on in the rest of society. And I caught, I caught a conversation with about six trans women and two trans men. And if you hadn't known, if you just looked at a transcript, you'd have said that the trans women were still acting more like men than women. And the trans men were uh, characteristically uh, women in that conversation. And I do think that although we transition, we do carry things forward. And I do wonder how much of it is that our sex actually is part of us. And some of this, I think, does come down to nature as well as nurture. It's all very fascinating. And I really like the, I really appreciate the chance to uh, talk about it because by talking about it, we might learn something. Danger had said one of the reasons why he thought um, that the activist community that was 
turning up the volume, let us say kindly, on all these issues was because they were mostly trans men and had been socialized, I'm sorry, trans women who had been socialized as men and behaved like men uh, would behave. I, I thought that was an interesting observation. Maybe we can um, we can talk about that. Did you want to respond to, to uh, Debbie at all, Xander, on that? Well I mean, I, I would say my experience within mixed company in the trans community has garnered a similar um, uh, experience as far as noticing the, the ways in which, you know, part of socialization is how to communicate and, and how to interact with individuals in a nonverbal way as well. And so if you walk into a space with a lot of trans people, you'll notice typically that the trans women are a lot larger right, taller than the trans men overall because of the fact that, you know, pre-transition, right, testosterone makes, you know, natal males much taller than natal females. And so, and then also, depending on what age we are when we, when we come into, you know, uh, starting our transition or going into the trans community, right, all those years, especially if you think about in the workplace, Right, the different ways in which we're socialized um, and oriented in our workplaces about how to command attention. You know, um, prior to transition, that wasn't something that a lot of people focused much time on training me to do, like how to command attention in a meeting in the workplace. Um, I got a lot of training in lesbian community on how to, you know, raise issues and be heard, but that's very different from running a, a meeting or running a department or running a corporation, which by and large trans women are gonna have a lot more experience with than trans men are. And so then that comes into the community and and the way we interact with each other. I think that's that's brilliant. It would be very interesting to do exactly that record a conversation, multiple, and then read transcripts, have other people who are not part of the community read the transcripts, and they probably would catalog people based on exactly what Debbie said. And I think that's just because there's a lot to undo, and not all of us are wanting or willing to undo all of our socialization. We're perfectly happy just bringing that part of ourselves into you know, our quote, new life, so to speak. You know, why why make a big deal out of it? You know, I I... I People, a lot of times people think I'm a gay man because of the way I speak or the way I gesture or the way I'm interacting. I don't even know what it is I'm doing, but somehow I'm triggering in them something that says feminine or female. And so I'm not going to go out of my way to try and rid myself of those cues. Um, it might be impossible to do, really. I don't know. Uh, but I have no interest in that. I'll just keep, you know, talking and then I'll show up with my wife and people will be shocked. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's very much interesting what we bring in, what we bring of ourselves forwards and through transition. Uh, I didn't transition to lose myself. And I think that's really important to me. So there's things from my past which I brought forwards and, uh, and it's, it's, it's really important to me. And what Xander was saying about the uh, yeah about, about conducting myself in meetings, I know how to I know how to get attention in meetings. I know how to uh, hold people's attention in meetings and drive meetings forwards. The interesting uh, experience I always have is uh, if I'm plot if I'm in in my in in my work environment, I'm sometimes in meetings with people who just don't know my background, and uh, much of my work is well well away from transgender issues that people just don't know. Sometimes I think I'm clocked, and I think I'm clocked more often now than I was because trans is more often in the news and people think about it. But if people aren't thinking about it, they just don't they don't pay any attention to it. And uh, what's really interesting in meetings is if people clock me as trans they will give way to me in the same way that they'll give way to they'll give way to men whereas if they don't I have to work harder in order to uh, get the attention and hold the uh, hold the thread of a debate in a in a meeting and that I think just comes down to the way in which society is organized and the way in which we uh, we uh, relate to we relate to each other but what can be uh, what what has happened Oh, a few times is when I'm in a meeting and I haven't been clocked and there's always that resistance and a lot of it comes from women as opposed to men in that me asserting myself in that in that meeting. If it becomes clear that I'm trans at which point it just changes. 
And it's almost as if people think, oh, this is this explains things. This is why this is why Debbie's been assertive, because Debbie's uh, used to be a man or really a man, or however how other people think about it. But uh, the way in which humans interact is it is fascinating. And by crossing by crossing over in some respects is what we do. I think we learn more about it than other people who sometimes I think there's just so much which you just take for granted and just passes by subliminally uh, that, you, that uh, you just don't notice. And I think we do because sometimes, especially when we think about it. Yeah, we're learning more from gender roles in this conversation than I have in all the sociology courses and Twitter <laughs> lectures, I think, combined. Um, but, um, you know, from YouTube, thank you. Um, so one of the things I became um, fascinated by, and it, it really came after a conversation we had with you, Debbie, um, was about how the experience of a trans man has psychologically this experience of dysphoria that they have um, be before they become a man or before the or the before the person becomes a woman and how that might differ among the two and you raised a term that I had heard of but I hadn't thought a lot of um, and I know it's very controversial autogynophilia I think I pronounced that right if, if I didn't let me know um, and I know that's something that you talked about with uh, Jennifer and I after the podcast. And I know that many trans women do not experience that or say that they don't experience that. Um, and, I, and I don't know if there's a corollary for trans men. I have not heard about that if there is. So I thought we would talk a little bit about that in the, and how that might differ or be similar in the two experiences. Maybe we'll start with you on that one, Debbie. First, yeah, Debbie, okay. excuse me, I didn't mean to, but for our listeners, can you give a little background of what that is exactly? Because I said kind of a word that I think some or some people are unfamiliar. Yeah, autogynophilia is controversial. It's uh it provokes a very strong reaction in people, and uh people uh do do shut down the argument, do shut down the debate, they don't want it talked about. It's uh the theory behind it, it's one uh it's one cause among several i believe what others have said as well of transsexualism that need to transition uh doesn't need to have just one single cause there can be uh there can be as many causes of this as there are of, of other of other symptoms in med in uh in, in medicine and in society so what is autogynophilia <clears throat> at its basis it's uh it's a it's a misdirected uh uh, focus of sexual attraction. Uh, one of the differences between uh, between men and women, males and females, is sexual orientation. Most uh, most females are attracted to males. Most males are attracted to females. That that that's a that's that's a that's a difference. And it's probably in the high nineties percent, depending on how you how you take the measure. But uh, among heterosexual males. There are different, and I, I speak here as a heterosexual male, there are different uh, focuses of sexual attraction. Some, uh, some men are attracted to uh, breasts, some to other, other areas of the female body, all, so, all sorts of things. Male sexuality is something which we don't much talk about either for one reason or another. Now, men can be attracted to virtually anything. Uh, a friend of mine who worked in a, in an emergency room in a hospital when they found men coming in with various things stuck in various or orifices suggested that this was true. Uh, yes, I was shaking the ketchup bottle and I slipped over. You, you know those sort of those sort of conversations that people hear. Uh, but men can be attracted to anything. But in autogynephilia, it's our own bodies. So why not our own bodies? And that's the question, is why not? We can be attracted to virtually anything else. So it's our bodies. But there you end up with, uh, there, you end, there you end up with an impossible problem. The man is attracted to their own body, but they're also heterosexual. And that own body is male, but they've got a heterosexual, uh, they've got a heterosexual attraction. And this is a circle that can't easily be squared. And you can see how there's various responses to this. Some men cross-dress to uh, give an illusion of having a female body. Uh, some men engage in, uh, you know, in fantasy or pornographic uh, uh, resources and uh, 
in, in that context there. But the ultimate really is changing your body in order to be a suitable target for that, uh, that sexual interest. Uh, that, that's basically what there is to it. And uh, it provides such a strong uh, disconnect and, uh, it, 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 in the head, really, to say there must be a solution to this. And transforming your body so that it is, uh, it's what you would want to actually, it's what you're attracted to naturally and uh, solves the problem in some ways. It creates many other problems, but it solves some, way, some problem in some ways because you're naturally attracted to something which you're attracted to. That's the whole basis of autogynophilia. Now, or, or by what I've said there, uh, apart from the ketchup bottles, I guess, uh, which uh, <laughs> we have a discussion about that. Uh, but in that way, it, sound, it sounds pretty neutral. But it, it, it's surrounded by so much, uh, so much debate, so much negativity. And also, as, a, as what I would say is, yeah, you know, autogynophilia drove my, uh, tran drove my transsexualism. I've talked about that. What I would say is it means that I've got to take responsibility for what I've done. I changed my body to make my body more attractive to me, I guess, uh, uh, to make life easier for me, to uh, make, you know, make, make my body more desirable for me. But that was a, a very personal decision, uh, which was taken for really quite selfish reasons. And that's something I need to take responsibility for. The standard model, which uh, many other trans women will suggest is, they transition because they had a gender identity that was female. And that's a different, that, that's different because suddenly you're saying, this was something which happened to me. I had this gender identity, not my fault, not my, uh, nothing I did or, or asked for, but I just had it. Therefore I transitioned in response to that. Uh, and, the same level of responsibility doesn't come with it because you're just doing something, reacting to something which has happened to you. Whereas I come along and say, actually, I did this to make life easier for me and I need to take some responsibility for this. And that, I think, uh, that's, I think, an issue which we don't discuss. But yeah, autogynophilia, mention it in some company and either the fireworks will go off or debate will be shut down or we'll just be... Uh, yeah, I sometimes sometimes in other company it's acute I'm accused of being a fetishist, you know, and uh and this is this is some uh, some fetish that you have and uh it can lead to fetish, but it's much deeper than that. Right there. What are what are your thoughts? What I I, I want to know what obviously what your thoughts about what Debbie just said and the very honest portrayal, but also whether there's a there's a corollary in the trans man experience as well that you know of well i i will just reinforce the um the statement that debbie made uh, talking about anagonophilia and the concept and subject of anagonophilia is very controversial so um there, there's no question about that um i actually know very little about it and the reason for that is because no there really isn't a corollary in the trans male community or ftm community or trans male or trans masculine there's a lot of different terms that people use <clears throat> i i do believe i've heard a few people over the last 20 years maybe you know sort of talk about the possibility but there's no real well thought out you know, category and concept in the same way, research, and definitely not, um, at least not that I know of. So if it is out there, somebody might be able to put it, you know, into the chat box and share it with us. Um, what I do find really interesting, and I agree with Debbie on as well, is that um, I think we all take very different routes to our medical transition. You know, those of us who are transsexual, we come to our understanding of ourselves and we do what we do um, for very different reasons and at very different times in our life and in very different ways. And I am not that different from Debbie in the sense that I also transitioned to make life easier for me. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I did not grow up with a sense of being born in a wrong body. I did not grow up with a sense of, 
I was supposed to be a man or I was supposed to be male. I did not grow up with those understandings. As a matter of fact, I really loved being a little tomboy and I loved being a lesbian. Um, and I really actually was thankful for the fact that I had a body that worked because I, I was very sick as a child. And um, I contracted rubella from the MMR vaccination when I was six years old, and I was paralyzed. I was in a coma. So the fact that I am I'm upwardly mobile and able, you know, and was able to make my way in the world, there was no way that I was at all having a problem with my body. Never. Um, in that, you know, maybe I thought, oh, you know, I need to lose weight or something along the way, but not in the way that I hated my body or thought it was a quote wrong body. My body is the right body for me. Um, have I made some changes to it surgically? Yes, I have. But overall, you know, it, it, it is my body and I'm thankful for it. It's not the wrong one. But what I mean by transitioning to make life easier for me is, and this is exactly what I did. I, I went to a presentation on testosterone, specifically dealing with, you know, the, the um, prospect of transitioning from female to male back in... Um, when was this now? Uh, 2005. And it was uh, it was led by a physician who had worked with transgender patients for about 12 years at that point. And it was a room full of people. It was a big auditorium uh, in a public library in San Francisco. And she just stood in front of the, the room with this huge like whiteboard in front of her and said, what are your questions? And wrote every single question down that we all had and put little check marks next to the, the ones that were asked over and over and over again. And then she systematically went through and answered those questions. And the primary questions that people had were, was testosterone going to make me angry and aggressive? Um, and, you know, that was the primary question. And so at the end of that, I thought, oh, well, the only reason I had not started testosterone is because I believed that it would make me violent, because that's the socialization I got in society. As a woman, right, growing up, men were violent, whether I experienced that violence firsthand or not, just men are violent and it's the testosterone. And so I had this fear that testosterone would make me violent. When I learned from this physician that actually hormone imbalance of any kind can make one violent, it wasn't the actual testosterone that made people violent. I, I decided I'm gonna start testosterone <clears throat> and I went to go see her and this is exactly what I said to her. I said, I'd like to do, I'd like to take testosterone. I'd like to have male secondary characteristics because I think my masculinity would be more publicly and socially accepted if people thought I was a man, right? Because I was a very masculine woman, right? I was a dyke in lesbian community. Um, I wasn't all the way like, you know, uber butch or diesel dyke or any of those funny terms that people are aware of. I was more in that sort of androgynous place in the lesbian community, kind of in the middle. People remember that character on, on Saturday Night Live, Pat, you know, people used to say, you know, are you a boy or a girl? And I'd be like, what do you think, little kid? You know, freak them out. Um, but, and I even wrote a story in 2000 called, are you a boy or a girl about that experience that I had over and over again in my adolescence, all the way up into my thirties. And so you know, I, I, I was very clear with her, like, I, I don't believe I'm in the wrong body. I don't believe that I was supposed to be male. I don't believe I think like a man. I don't even know what that means. Um, I just think if I were walking down the street and I looked and sounded like I do now, and I was right, by the way, people would leave me alone. Now, people leave me alone in the sense that I don't get called dyke as I'm walking down the road anymore. But what I didn't know at the time is that men are much more vulnerable and, and, and um, the target of violence and vitriol in society. Um, you know, I was under the impression that uh, women experienced the bulk of mistreatment um, in society. Um, but I, I've come to learn that more men are are assaulted than women when you look at say statistics of you know who's beat up in public who's who's you know held up by gunpoint who's killed more often right it's it's men and so i did open myself up to a little bit more of like the the possible skirmish with the random man on the street which i never had experienced prior to transition um, that i've had to learn how to navigate um, over the over the last 15 or 16 years. But so 
And, and I agree also that we don't talk about this a lot in our community, that some of us transition just to make life easier, not because we're compelled to, not because if we don't, we're going to kill ourselves, not because we feel we're born in the wrong body, not before, because we think we have some mental illness called gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder. Um, by the way, gender dysphoria is going away. The diagnostic statistics manual is going to be uh, removing gender dysphoria and replacing it with gender incongruence. And they'll be putting it into a completely different category in that book. So uh, the hope is that that will lessen the stigma. We'll see. I, I'm not sure if it will, but that is the goal, I think. Can I ask a question about that? Um, so you would say that you, gender dysphoria is when someone feels that they need to be in another body. And so you would say you, or they were born differently. Is that correct? And you would say you don't have gender dysphoria because you didn't change because you had any problem with your body, but to make life easier. Did I get that right? I think gender dysphoria can be anything from really mild to severe. <clears throat> and I think the, the, common, the common understanding that you hear from people nowadays is you don't actually have to have gender dysphoria to transition because just think of somebody like me, right? I don't believe that I had gender dysphoria. Um, I believed, and, and I've written about this year, it's been years now, maybe 2007, I wrote about this, that I, I used to tell people, I don't have gender dysphoria, society has gender dysphoria, right? Society expects me to perform a particular kind of femaleness or femininity that I'm just not going to do. It doesn't, it didn't come naturally to me to be a girly woman. Um, I always, from the time I was a little kid, I've always been much more masculine, um, but I didn't have a sense of distress about it. I wasn't distressed about my masculinity. I wasn't distressed about my lesbianism. It was the people that I interacted with, they were distressed by it. So that's kind of how I make sense of it. Um, a lot of people think gender dysphoria is only severe. It can be mild. It can also be in quote remission, so to speak, under the new, you know, under gender dysphoria categorization. Uh, because once people transition, sometimes that gender dysphoria can go away. But again, it's it's very individual. And not everybody who has gender dysphoria has a desire to go through a medical transition or even a social transition. Some people are just gender non-conforming and can live their life with a sort of mild level of feeling out of sorts based on what society expects and what, what they do and don't like about their body, just like everybody else, right? People, lots of people don't like parts about their body. They have maybe body dysmorphia. They have, you know, attributes of them, their body that they don't like that maybe their breasts are too small or too big. And so they have a surgery, something like that, right? Well, it sounds like also, Debbie, to you, I mean, gender dysphoria is uh, kind of a miscategorization for you as well, wouldn't it, be, would you say? Well, it's what gender dysphoria is. I remember one of the biggest, biggest uh, challenges I faced before transition was trying to ask myself, did I have gender dysphoria or not? You talk about what this gender dysphoria is, and the, the definitions are circular. It's, well, you have a dysphoria with your gender, and to try and identify and pin down what this is, is difficult. Uh, it was called gender identity disorder. Now it's gender dysphoria and in future with gender incongruence. But it, in some ways, this is an artificial diagnosis of the medical community. Really, there is a, there is a process of transition. Some of us have transitioned. Some of us, have, whether we need to transition or we want to transition, we can have that debate. But there is this, let's just call it a need to transition. But the medical medical industry doesn't isn't happy with that. There has to be a diagnosis. So the diagnosis of gender uh, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria before it gender identity disorder was created really to uh, allow access to the treatment which came from what Harry Benjamin and others had, had put forward. You can't just have people signing up and saying, "I think this will make my life better." What you, uh, what you have to have is a diagnosis uh, which you are suffering from, which then requires medical treatment. It's how, it's how medicine works. So I would, you know, I wonder whether any of this diagnosis is necessary at all. Uh, if it keeps uh, medics happy and insurance companies happy and in our country, the health service happy, then, then fair enough. But 
I don't I don't believe it's necessary. And the very fact that the terminology keeps changing and the understanding of it keeps changing uh, suggests to me that uh, it's more of a pragmatic diagnosis than a real diagnosis. Yeah, the the you know, the ICD, the International Code of Disorders, Disease and Disorders by the World Health Organization, I believe, you know, they they have. um you know, they also have these manuals that have diagnoses in them. Um, and then the American Psychiatrics Association has the has the DSM uh, and the American Medical Association um, deals with these uh, CPT codes for billing. Right. So it's like if you can't bill for something, then the service isn't provided. Right. And so if you can't bill for it, the insurance company doesn't know how to pay for it. And so the only way to get something billed or coded originally is for a doctor to to diagnose you. Right. So it's it's all this very in, it's very complex. It's almost like taxes. Right. It's like very complex and very difficult to unravel um, that there has to be a code and somebody has to bill and somebody has to be reimbursed and there needs to be a diagnosis. And so like a, a DSM diagnosis of gender dysphoria doesn't automatically trigger trigger the you know the insurance company paying for something there are other cpt codes that go along with each procedure that we're getting done it's very itemized down to the specifics um so one of my one of my closest friends is a psychiatrist at a very very large institution he heads up hundreds of psychiatrists and he was telling me that um to, to, to him and many of his uh, psychiatrist colleagues, a, diag- a psychiatric diagnosis is simply a way of categorizing something for insurance companies. In other words, the actual human experience of being in mental distress is much, much more complicated than any diagnosis could possibly capture. But you needed some kind of construct that allows you to talk about it, to categorize in some ways, but it's always going to be imperfect and and sometimes in in categorizing in a certain way, we actually end up with not treating it in the way that we ought to. Um, I wanted I wanted to see if we could go in a in a slightly different direction for a second. The other a, a couple of weeks ago, I think I might have spoken to you about this uh, privately, Xander. A couple of weeks ago, I heard a fascinating conversation. Um, it was on Andrew Sullivan's podcast with um, Andrew's gay. Um, the two guests he had, Katie Herzog and Jamie Kirchick, are also gay. And they were talking about some of the trans issues. And each in their own way is sort of frustrated with sort of trans activism. And I think maybe the sense that 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 uh, that they as gay people have been sort of sidelined in the movement. And um, But one thing that they were concerned about is puberty blockers, which re- just came out in a fascinating piece that Abigail Schreier did in Barry... Uh, Barry Weiss's Substack, and we can talk about that as well. But 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 the argument was that if we give kids puberty blockers before that they before they hit puberty, which is what puberty blockers do, um, they may not experience their sort of authentic sexuality, which they would if they were teens and went through puberty, and they may not realize. Uh, that they were bec- that they were actually either gay or or heterosexuals, and that they wouldn't settle that their their sex that their dysphoria might not pass, um, or or might otherwise pass if they had experienced that 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 sexual surge that takes place during puberty. Do either of you have any thoughts uh, on that? It didn't really come out in the Barry Weiss Abigail Schreier piece because they were really talking about. Um, about why uh, why why these puberty blockers might cause some problems um, that make actual transitioning later on in life more difficult. So it was a different take on it. But I wanted to go back to the Andrew Sullivan take. I don't think we should be uh, treating children this way. I really don't. I uh, I have grave concerns about the uh, treatment protocol, the Dutch protocol, as it was uh, as it's called which is to ident- try and identify uh, proto-trans people before puberty and then put them on a course, which means that they can go, th- they can develop in the same way as the opposite sex. I think, I don't, I, I don't think we can uh, make those predictions with any, any great amount of certainty. Uh, I've too many female friends in middle age who have been concerned that they would have been uh they would have been uh now in middle age who would have been uh 
affected by this as children. Too many. So A, you can't get the target audience. Now I can't I can't speak for uh natal females at all, but as a natal male growing up, uh some of my you know trans women friends point out that their life would have been so much better had they been identified at nine years old and put on a course of action which uh meant that they could have developed uh differently. And I counter that actually on a on a number of levels. Firstly, uh Firstly, having reached 53 years old, I am who I am. And if, if things have been different, or would have been somebody different. So I'm, I'm happy with myself. I'm content and happy with myself. Mm. Uh, secondly, I do look back at my transition now and think, was that the right thing to do? It helped me, but uh, it had a negative effect on people around me. But I know that when I took those decisions, I was an adult. I had all the experience of being an adult I knew what an adult meant uh so I can look back and think yes I, I made that uh that decision in full in full knowledge of who I was and full competency and the other thing is I didn't I'd already had my children by that point I was already you know transition gender surgery didn't sterilize me I was I'd already had a vasectomy before then so I was already I was already sterile in in that way so I didn't lose that and uh, and more the point when we actually when I actually had gender surgery, uh, the results were very good. But because I had, should we say the uh, you know the, the parts could be recycled appropriately, and I had the parts to recycle. I worry about children. I worry about uh, natal boys who are identifying as trans. We don't really ask why uh, in too many cases. Sometimes it's that they've just. Uh, they're just uh, like uh, activities which are more typical of females. The, in the DSM, you know, the uh, diagnosis for childhood gender dysphoria actually talks about uh, those activities. Uh, and so we don't, you know, bo boys are there, we're not asking why. And then, and then when the surgery comes about, you know, there's this, there's a case of, uh, you know, Jazz Jennings, whose surgery was a lot less satisfactory than mine, which brings us full circle to the Abigail Schreier piece, because it was Marcy Bowers in that piece, you know, the surgeon in that case, who is now casting doubt on whether it's the right thing to do. And when Marcy Bowers is casting doubt on this, then uh, I don't feel so uh, lonely and a bit of a, a lone wolf as I was doing. Oh, this is such a big uh, topic. Um... You know, I don't work with youth. Um, and when I started my master's of social work program in orientation, the person sitting next to me said, are you going to work in child welfare? And I was like, oh, God, no. And they gave me this horrible look like I was a terrible person <clears throat> because I knew I just knew I'm not, I don't want to work with children. And it's not because I don't like children. It's because I don't like to see children suffer. And I, I think I would just be a constantly angry person um, because of how terrible children are, how much children are suffering. Um, so I went to work with adults. So I haven't worked with trans kids either um, in any capacity, whether it's professional or personal. I, I have been involved in a couple of organizations that have mostly parents in them. And they have their kids around, but I'm I'm never really spending time with those kids, or I didn't. Uh, maybe a few on a few occasions, the teenagers, but that's you know that's different. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that since I'm separated from this in some way because I I don't work with children, I don't have children, um, I'm not involved in the schools in any way. So this isn't this isn't a topic that comes up for me on a regular basis. Um, outside of this, like talking about it on a podcast or reading, you know, like say Abigail Schreier's piece, um, it it what it does is it it just gives me more questions. So, like for example, I I never really thought about the fertility issues from that perspective of if you block puberty. Um, then you're also blocking the process by which um, fertility happens, right? So if you if you stop a natal female's puberty from happening entirely, right? Then there's no what is the word the word be like germination, right? Of of the of the of the eggs um, in order to make them viable for if you want to take them out. I, I don't think you could take out the eggs of a of a of a person who's female if they haven't experienced that first whatever fertilization or whatever i don't know the language sorry i'm not a biologist um and so it's like 
I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I know that there's a huge criticism coming from the United States toward those countries that mandate sterilization for um, for the legal process of changing perhaps your sex right in your country, right? Like I think Sweden used to mandate sterilization. Japan mandates sterilization before they'll change you know, the sex or gender that's on your, your documents, your government documents. Um, and so here, it's interesting then to think about it from the other perspective, which is if we block puberty, then we're creating sterilization. Um, and why wouldn't we be equally alarmed about that, right? It sounds to me like it, there's a similarity there um, that isn't just isn't being thought through. I know I haven't been thinking it through. And so I was, I appreciated reading, um, reading the article uh, to get a little bit more perspective on, on that issue of fertility. Um, I, I, you know, there's this other issue of, you know, puberty blockers, when are they started, right? Um, and, and is it necessary to use them? It just depends. Like I started puberty when I was 11. I don't know at 11, you put somebody on cross-sex hormones. If I had 11 years old, I was in so much distress about my gender, um, which I wasn't, but had I been puberty blockers, I guess would have been used to sort of halt my, um, continuation, um, into my puberty. Um, I wasn't too bothered by my puberty, so I, I can't really compare myself to it. Um, I, I like that when I went through puberty, I got bigger and stronger. I kind of liked, you know, I was an athlete, so I kind of liked that I, I had a higher testosterone level. Um, and I know that because my mother had it checked because she was worried about me. Um, <laughs> the doctor's like, your testosterone is higher than usual. You might be a lesbian. I think I was like 16. I'm like, I'm on like my second or third girlfriend, dude, you know, like, please. <laughs> Um, people are crazy, uh, but that was, you know, back in the eighties, um, early eighties, but it's like, you know, so I, I haven't actually thought really long and hard and fully about these, these concepts. And I, it, I've, I've protected myself because I don't work with kids and it keeps me out of the controversy as well. Um, because I don't have much to say because I'm not well-informed. Um, so I'll admit that I'll admit that I'm not well informed, but but I, I think there is a real reason to pause with concern around fertility issues. If if mandating sterilization is not OK, I don't know why it would be OK to uh, create sterilization with these blockers. I know why blockers are being used. Like I understand what's motivating people to want right, especially parents, right, because their kids are in a lot of distress, and they want to, um, they want to lower that distress level, like, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not at all bemoaning, you know, what's, what the motivation is, I'm just, now this issue around fertility really does um, give me a pause, um, and I, but I want to make, I want to make clear that I, you know, I know that we're, most of us have the capacity to reproduce, but I don't think that that's, you know, I, uh, my biological imperative was not to reproduce. So I, I don't want to come across as that sort of reproductive essentialist saying, you know, we need to reproduce, uh, you know, our, our species. Um, I think there's mm -hmm. enough people doing that. <laughs> right. So it's, let me see if I'm capturing this in the way that you both think I should. The, the, the case against puberty blockers, it seems to me I've heard three things. One is sterilization. Two is that it may make it more surgically complicated and even dangerous later on in a, in a transition if you don't have fully developed genitalia. Um, and three, you haven't given the, the, the person a chance to go through puberty and see how their sexuality develops. Those are the three things I've heard. I've heard two things that might argue for, um, for it, which are one is your child is in distress and they don't you don't want them to be in distress. And two, you especially I think for for trans females, um, maybe more than trans males, you, it gives you a fighting chance to to come off more um, typically as a woman if you've got if you've if you've got gone the, done the transition earlier before going through puberty. Did I capture those uh, those that correctly? More yeah, I mean, I would say that I would say that, you know, that there's actually there's not the same surgical um, problems 
on, on, the, on the trans male side or the FTM side because with puberty blockers, um, then they're not gonna develop breasts. So they won't have to have chest reconstruction surgery. Um, they're, they're, the likelihood of with cross-sex hormones is that maybe they'll end up with, you know, with, with a, a more typical male arm length, which then would give them actually more skin um, or torso length, which would give them more skin options for the skin types that are used to actually do the genital reconstruction um, for, for the trans male. So, you know, we're, we're not, um, and then also there'd be no menstruation, which, you know, a lot of people would be happy to forego. <laughs> you know, I know, I, I know I've been very happy about that. But I wanted to also mention that one thing I read in the article that I wasn't familiar with was the, um, the concerns that the proponent of the Dutch protocol had way back in like, what was it like 2005 yeah. or six or something? And that then it was brought over to the United States um, at, at a children's hospital in Boston in like 2007. I had never heard that there were those concerns. Um, and I'm, I've decided that I want to, you know, I want to look into those because they have the experience of running that protocol for a number of years. And, and after those numbers of years, if they had concerns around the same things that Dr. Bowers raises about like surgery, outcomes um, why did why were those things ignored or why were they um, left out when bringing it over why didn't they figure out a way to mitigate that instead of repeat it that would have been nice if they would have figured out like let's let them go through a short amount of puberty and then stop it or just put them on cross-sex hormones um, if they're at, at appropriate age and they've persisted right into this cross-sex identity um, yeah, I, I, I didn't know about the Dutch protocol, um, you know, providers being concerned. Yeah, just picking up in the UK, yes, it was, uh, it went to Boston in 2007. Uh, it was picked up in the UK around 2010 when the uh, paediatric gender services in, in England uh, started a, a long-term study in 2010 to look at the uh, look at the uh, experiences of children. They only just published that study last year and they'd been asked for it and asked for it and asked for it. And finally they published it last year. And one of their conclusions was there was no impact on psychological function in that the children who had been put on, uh, who had been put on this protocol, their psychological distress continued essentially. Uh, it wasn't in itself a solution to the uh, a solution to the problems that they were uh, they, they were struggling with, but it is so mixed up with politics and so mixed up with the uh, with the with the with this debate. It's very difficult to separate out the science. Uh, as a scientist myself, uh, we should always be doing controlled experiments. In any other area of medicine, you'd be doing a controlled experiment. You'd be taking one cohort of children and another one, but nothing like that has ever been done. And I don't think it could be done to say to uh, a child, I'm sorry, you can't have the puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones because you're in the control group. You know, it, it just it, it just it just wouldn't happen. And it's not something you can do as a double blind, uh, uh, a double blind uh test anyway if you have testosterone injections or you don't you're going to know the difference uh so you know so it, it's really difficult but as a scientist i am concerned about it it doesn't it doesn't seem to be improving the psychological function of children i i you know and that's what it's supposed to be doing and without proper controlled research into it it is uh it is by its very nature an uncontrolled experiment so you guys, I, David, we have this kind of running thing where David asks the more philosophical, esoteric questions, and I, I, I tend towards the banal. So as we end up, I've got, <laughs> I've got some more human interest questions. I really, this one's directed mostly at you, Debbie, because I'm, I'm very interested. So you still like you identify as a heterosexual, and you are married. I, I would just love to. What did your wife? You, you're still married, am I right? How did she react? You know, you say that it was somewhat selfish and I'm assuming that that might've been towards some of your family. Can you give a, just, you know, how, how did that dynamic work within your family? How's it, and how's it going? Uh, it was really difficult for my family at the time. And uh, I didn't really appreciate what was, what, what was happening. I, I remember making big announcements to say, I've worked out I'm really a woman, which means I've got to transition and, uh, and that's it really. 
you know so i uh, that's 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 a, that's where that's where i was uh stephanie stephanie had and and she 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 has said uh that you know she had no she felt she had no say what was going on and just had to uh go along with it really uh how we 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 did manage to stay together uh we uh which is testament to her really uh if they are you know in in, a, in marriage you talk about for better for worse and i think this was very worse uh we have things 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 have improved this is we're talking 10 years ago now and we we've moved forward but it's not what it's not what she would have wanted it's not you know it's still harder for her she's recently had a new job and uh so she's talking to people and then again you know she you know she's got to decide when she talks to people uh it's fine for me to talk about my partner or my spouse which she does or try to avoid using the words husband wife and uh, but eventually she has to come out every single time that uh, yes uh, she has a transsexual partner and then and that's not really what she wants to do this is this is supposed to be the small talk you know i'm you know i'm married to so and so we've got two children two cats and whatever that were whereas in her position she says yes i'm married to uh, debbie but debbie transitioned suddenly it's it's hard work and it just keeps happening and just and never stops for her so it's it, it's not you know it, it's not easy it is it, it is selfish i look now and say well i look back actually and i think well had I known in 2011 what I know now, would I have transitioned? And I, I, I probably, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I say it's easy for me to say no, I wouldn't. But then you go back to the situation I was in in 2011. I read through my journals at the time, and I was in a, I was generally in a psychological mess. But uh, yeah, it's it is hard, uh, Jennifer, and. Uh, yeah, it, but it's something that you would really need to speak to Stephanie about. You know, that's uh, that that would be <laughs> that would be well. that would be an interesting conversation for you. But if you do, I'd want to be well out of there because it's uh, <laughs> it, it, it will be her platform and for her right to say, not for uh, not for me to be there as well. Mm, interesting. Maybe we should do spouses next. And Xander, to to you, I mean, I'd love to to the extent that you're again comfortable with that. I mean, how does does your spouse does she identify as um heterosexual or you know how did you guys meet and is there any story there that you can tell without divide divulging too much <laughs> well margaret's used to me talking about this by now <laughs> um as a matter of fact we just celebrated our 19th anniversary uh last month so and I started my medical transition three years into our relationship. So the first three years of our relationship, people would have called us a lesbian couple, but I was no longer identifying as a lesbian and Margaret was never lesbian. Margaret was bisexual. Um, and so, but I had, at the time I had told her, you know, I'm, I'm trans identified, but I'm not gonna do hormones. And for the reason I already mentioned, cause I thought they'd make me angry and violent. And so, uh, it wasn't until I went to that, uh, com you know, to that presentation by that physician about testosterone. I just came home from that and I said, I'm going to start testosterone. And she was like, what? <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm like, it's not going to make me violent. It'll be OK. And she was like, all right. So I think she was a little I mean, she was caught off guard, of course. Um, and. Um, yeah, quite frankly, I think a similar situation, as Debbie said, um, I didn't give her much choice in the matter. I was going to do what I was going to do. And transition is a very selfish act. It really is. Um, and that doesn't always have to mean a negative. Um, I think when you go through a second puberty, adolescence is very selfish. And so I think we are going through a set, we go through a second puberty. And so we're selfish again, but we're doing it like me at age 39, which is just age inappropriate, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and especially in a marriage. Um, but thankfully, Margaret was quite amendable. And uh, because she had that bisexual, um, I did, you know, um, orientation, it, it wasn't going to be too far out of her comfort, you know, um, level. Um, but I do recall it was about a year after I started testosterone. I, um, 
I had my, my first surgery, which was the chest reconstruction where they, it's like a double mastectomy and then they do some reconstruction. So now I have what's considered a male contour chest for whatever that means. Um, it just means they, they put the nipples and areolas in a different place on your chest, right? Um, and remove most of that fatty tissue, not all of it, but most of it. Cause otherwise you'd be kind of concave and it wouldn't look good. Um, when I first told Margaret I was gonna have that surgery, she was not very happy. Um, that was a brief, um, unhappiness, but, you know, she had related to my body in a very particular way, right? We were, and it, as a, you know, as a couple in our intimacy. And so I was going to be surgically removing a part of my body that she related to in an intimate manner. Um, and I was much more by that point, I was much more open to hearing her concerns and her thoughts. I still went forward, obviously with the surgery, but I, I was, I wasn't so, um, just sort of bulldozing it through like I had with, with testosterone. Um, I was, I was willing and, um, you know, and, and open to hearing, I was still going to have the surgery, but I wanted to hear her concerns about it. And we've been that way ever since because I've had more surgeries. Um, and so, uh, or, you know, like what would be considered like genital reconstruction surgery, phalloplasty surgery. Um, and so we've, we, she's been there all through that. Um, and so, she, you know, has been a trooper. And what I find the most um, surprising often is when I say to people, oh yeah, Margaret and I were celebrating our 19th anniversary or back when it was 15 years, 10 years, whatever, almost always the response from within trans community or among quote unquote our allies is, wow, right? People are shocked because they expect that the relationships are gonna end that uh, people are going to go, oh, no, pause, deal breaker, I'm out. Um, and, you know, a lot of us are, are quite fortunate that our loved ones, um, they stick in with us through the thick and thin. They really are invested in the relationship um, and they deal with those struggles. Like, you know, Debbie mentioned about her wife in the workplace. Margaret has some similar things that come up because, you know, uh, when we were, quote, a lesbian couple, she didn't get the same kinds of questions that she was all of a sudden gonna get when she said, I have a husband, right? And as a lesbian couple, so to speak, people didn't say, oh, do you have kids? Are you married? You know, uh, do you own a house? You know, all those like quote unquote normal heterosexual things. Um, but now she gets asked questions like that. Um, and I don't know, I don't know to what degree she's become more comfortable with it. I, I just think she doesn't like that that we don't that we ask different questions based on sexual orientation and and the couple you know configurations that um, why don't people care that you know gay and lesbian couples are having kids or not having kids right so like and maybe they are more so now because same sex marriage is legal now it wasn't back in the day when we got married um, but I was legally male in California so we were able to get married. Um, so, but I, I think it would be great to have, to have partners and spouses on. Uh, Margaret has definitely, you know, joined me on occasion, but I think their ability to talk without us present is mm -hmm. also really important. Well, let's plan awesome. that part two. If, if Stephanie would be interested in that as well, Debbie, I don't know. <laughs> we can I can ask. Okay. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, thank I you feel so very much. Privileged, but before, yeah. before just, yeah, and I feel very privileged to have this mm -hmm. conversation. I feel like it was, you guys both were very thoughtful um, and opened a conversation that many of us don't see, but that's also really healthy for, for us to have that, to be able to think about these issues with more nuance and to have a sort of an inside view of your lives, but also the conversation that should be had in public. So thank you. Yeah, thank you know, you. Uh, can I say one thing about that, yeah. David? And that is that, you know, back in the mid 80s, when I was involved in public conversations around uh, interpersonal violence or what they used to call domestic violence within gay and lesbian couples, in particular lesbian couples, I was constantly uh, told to not talk about that, to not, quote, air the dirty laundry, to right. that we were better than those breeder couples, right? We were better than the heterosexuals, <laughs> and we shouldn't talk about violence in the lesbian community um, within our couples. And, and so there, there are some similar taboo topics, you know, within trans community that um, I think we should be able to talk about anything and all things, 
right? Regardless of how sensitive, how controversial, or maybe how even ultimately proven wrong they might be. We should be able to have, I'm a free speech absolutist. We should be able to have these conversations um, and, and, and let the chips fall where they might. Because if, if the non-trans world wants to use these kinds of things against us as trans people, I think we have enough integrity and we have enough history um, and we have enough support on our side to say, hey, some of us are really thriving, <laughs> you know, or some of us are, are, are contributing in really big ways to society. And some of us are raising wonderful children. And some of us are, are doing jobs in the world that are are, that are going to take us into the future scientifically and educationally and philosophically like you know we know we're not bad people so I don't think that they have they, they're ever going to get that much ammunition to quote take us out as a people there's a great uh there's this great story about the monster at the end of this book um and it's about Grover you know and and you go through the book and you're wondering what horrible monster you might see at the end um, that and it's Grover's telling um, after at this and it's Grover himself at the end is the monster at the end of the book and I feel like in many cases where we 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 are scared to air these issues publicly because of the monster at the end of the book and really the monster is just our own fears and um, and I think uh, I'm glad to be able to model that um, and and at the end of the day show people you're safe and we're safe um, because we've had, and better off because we've had these conversations, thoughtful conversations than we would have been otherwise. Well, and I don't know about you, Debbie, but I, I, I have faced consequences. I mean, I was recently removed as the chair of a committee for a national trans organization because of my heterodox, you know, thinking, um, you know, I, I'm speaking about things that people don't want me to speak about. And so I was removed from that position. Um, I was asked to resign and I refused because that would be that to me is dishonest. Um, they want me gone. They have to remove me. And so that's what ultimately is happening. Um, and so there are consequences for speaking on issues that are considered taboo. Have you faced similar consequences on your end? Uh, yes, I have. I've sat on, uh, I've sat on committees in the UK and uh, I no longer sit on committees because yeah. uh, my views were uh, seen as uh, unwelcome. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, people tried to remove me through disciplinary processes, but eventually the democratic process uh, uh, process uh, dealt with me in that, uh, yeah, my views are are not necessarily mainstream within within uh, within our community, but I hold them sincerely, I hold them passionately, and I'm quite I'm quite happy to debate those along uh, alongside other people's views. And then hopefully we can understand each other and and uh, and take the best of what everybody thinks. But uh, I'm not I'm ne I'm not I've never been one to uh, keep my mouth shut and do as I'm told. Unfortunately, <laughs> me either. I call that my inner dyke. I was trained. I was trained to never never shut up or be you know. Mm -mm. So you know. Sorry. Very people. well. You've been trained very well. Uh. <laughs> Uh, it's such a pleasure to speak with you guys. Thank you so much. I hope to do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. And it, also, again, Debbie, it was wonderful to meet you. And I, I hope our paths cross again. Likewise, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website, where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, hold my drink, and the conversation gets real. <laughs>